we gather here today, we find ourselves just kind of working through a bunch of emotions after another mass shooting this past week in our country on Tuesday in Texas, where innocent children were gunned down by actually somebody not too much older than them. And you throw that on top of what already happened in Buffalo and Milwaukee and throw a sex scandal with the Southern Baptist Church in there and just mix all that up in there. And it tends to feel like our world's just kind of spinning out of control, right? Uh, leaves us with a lot of questions like why and God, where are you? And, and if you are such a good and powerful God, like why, why do you not intervene? Why do you not step in to those things? So I watched the footage of what happened in Texas play out. I remember a phone call that came to our house uh, when we lived in Noblesville. There was a school shooting at the school system where our kids attended. Uh, neither of our kids attended the actual school where the shooting happened, where a teacher and student were shot, but we waited to know if our kids were safe. We have dealt with what it, uh, just the aftermath of having kids in uh, lockdown and just the emotional baggage of that, just kind of their innocence lost. Also, just that sickening feeling of like, could we have done something? What should we have done? What, what can be done, right? Um, all those questions, and many of them like that, actually uh, flooded us over the past couple of weeks as we asked for questions from the congregation that we're actually putting together into a teaching series that starts next week. We're calling it Q&A. There were a lot of questions about the sovereignty of God and theodicy, which like, where is God in suffering? And uh, we're actually going to kick off that series looking at a lot of those questions, not because the uh, 24-hour news leap just, just keeps you know, peltering us with uh, stories of violence, but really because we're trying to figure out how do we navigate the world we live in that's where the presence of evil is so obvious and yet still kind of keep our hearts focused on the God we love, the God we serve, and how to just navigate this world. Um, and this past week, I just kind of wrestled more with that tension, not because of all that was going on in our country also, because of the last topic we want to look at in this series, we've entitled The Jesus I Never Knew. We've been looking since Easter, like who Jesus really is. We've looked at his resurrection, obviously. We've looked at his incarnation. We've taken some test samples of his teaching and of his miracles. We looked at his mission. We've tried to answer the question, is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of us following him? Is he worthy of our trust? And today we're going to take uh, one last look for now at, at an aspect of of Jesus so we can kind of continue this journey. We're going to look today at, at the kingdom of Jesus. And that's an interchangeable phrase with like the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And just kind of pose some questions as we begin. Is the arrival of Jesus' kingdom good news? What does it really mean when Jesus says, I've come to bring heaven to earth? What does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What does it look like for for us to live in that way, and is it worth it? Those are some of the questions we want to wrestle today as we look at what Jesus has to say about the kingdom. More than any other subject that Jesus taught about, actually the kingdom was. Last spring, we focused an entire sermon series on the kingdom of God. If you want to go back and check that out, it's available on our website under sermons and media. But Jesus' most descriptive references for the kingdom are actually found in what's called a parable. These were uh, metaphors or illustrations that were captured in stories. And Jesus in these stories used many common things and experiences in his world of, the, of that time to describe what the kingdom of 
heaven is really like. Now, some have used a simple definition that a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning to try to define a parable. And while that's nice and gets us going maybe in the right direction, it really doesn't do what a parable is justice. Parables were not used really to make a rational argument or to prove a point, but rather to create meaning, to provide a description. Uh, a, a parable is really not a delivery system for an idea, but instead, using metaphors or similes or dramatic action, parables can create pictures that thousands of words really could not express. Parables intend to challenge the listener or the reader with uh, that ab- uh, something, uh, in a way that abstract statements really can't even approach. Kenneth Bailey wrote a book and it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he writes that a parable is a house in which the reader or listener takes up residence in. And a parable is a way to look through the windows of that residence to see the world. Kind of a filter for the world. And if that's the case, we have to be careful to not forget that we didn't grow up in the first century. Uh, we're not part of the ancient world. And so the things that Jesus refers to in his parables require us to understand the historical context, to understand them as we think about making theological application even to our day today. We must allow context to guide our discovery and also our understanding. Jesus told many parables, and they were captured by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not all the parables revolve around the kingdom of God, but Matthew tends to gather things in clumps in his gospels. We found that out when we were looking at the teachings of Jesus, kind of the Sermon on the Mount is one big gathering of Jesus' teachings. And he does the same thing in Matthew chapter 13 with parables that teach us about the kingdom. I'd encourage you to grab a copy of the Bible, whether yours or the one in the seat back in front of you, turn to Matthew 13. We're going to work through several of these parables. Now, Matthew refers to the kingdom of God like 53 times in his gospel. We're not going to cover all that he had to say about the kingdom today. But we want to look at a couple of these parables that are captured in Matthew 13. And most of them begin with Jesus actually saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. So let's look at a couple of the first two. We're going to start with the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. And we'll start with the parable of the weeds found in Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus told them a parable and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Why then or where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. So the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you must, might also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and then bundle them and be, to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Growing up, my parents raised a huge garden every summer. And as a member of the Heller household, that means you had the opportunity to help with the garden, right? We spent the last part of the spring planting lots of seeds. We did a bunch of watering. And at the end, we helped with the harvest. One of my least favorite jobs was pulling weeds. It seemed like weeds always needed to be pulled on the hottest day of the year. I see a head nod out there. You've been there, right? It was my least favorite job. Not like there was any job with gardening that was really enjoyable as a kid, right? 
And so when I read this parable by Jesus who said, don't pull the weeds, well, I felt a little bit of excitement in my heart. I felt vindicated for all the manual labor I had to perform as a kid, right? But it also kind of caught me theologically. I started to wonder, why not pull out the weeds, right? Well, I think this parable starts to tell us something about the kingdom of God that's important for us to know. It seems to start to speak about this now and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. And we see that when we see both good and evil coexisting. You heard the story Jesus said, right? Both the weeds and the wheat existed at the same time. And this master said, don't pull out the weeds right now because you might mistakenly uproot the wheat. Now, there's a, there's a lot about that that we might not understand, and not every parable do we have this luxury, but in this one specifically, Jesus actually unpacks and explains what he means in the parable. Look at verse 37. Jesus said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. And Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear. It speaks of like what's currently happening right now, that Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. But he also is going to come back one day, and that will, when he comes back, will, he will bring judgment. He will separate the weeds and the wheat. The weeds will be destroyed, and the wheat will be stored in the barn. Now, there's a, another parallel that Jesus tells in a parable, the parable of the net. Look over at verse 47 with me. He says this. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was uh, let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. When they sat down and collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus speaking to what the kingdom of God is like. And although there is still evil in the world, God is still in control. And he's accomplishing his purpose no matter how evil seems to be strong. And he declares that there will come a day where the kingdom of God will be consummated. It's a big word to just say the end will come and judgment will happen. The kingdom of God, also revealed in these parables, is indicated that it's not forced upon anyone. People have a choice in the matter. And this choice goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God chose not to program Adam and Eve to respond obediently, but gave them free will. Now, if I was God, I don't know that I would have chose that option. I don't know that I would have created a robot that would have been turned on and kicked me in the shin, right? But I'm not God. Here's what I do know, that I've looked down many such a choice as Adam and Eve had, a choice to follow God and obey him that leads to life and peace and rest in the kingdom of God, or to go my own way. To choose a path that seems well-trodden and pretty popular. It's where the rest of the world's going. And I'm sad to say that many times I've chosen that option. Jesus tells this parable to say, like, 
The good and the evil coexist. You have a choice in the matter and there will be consequences based on the choices that you make. Pastor Michael Morrison writes this. He says, in farming, weeds can never produce wheat. But when it comes to the gospel, fruitless folks can be changed. What looks like weeds may one day begin bearing fruit another day. It depends on each person's choice, and the kingdom of God gives people time to choose. This will not go on forever, however. There will come judgment, and the weeds will be removed from the kingdom. God lets good and bad grow together, but he doesn't want the bad to stay bad. He wants them to change, and he will keep only the good. God's purposes will prevail. And he truly wants all people to be part of the kingdom of God. But that requires a choice on the person's behalf. Who will rule in your hearts? Will it be yourself? Will it be evil? Or will it be Jesus or God? This idea of choice continues in the parables that Jesus goes on to teach. He, he gives two more parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl. Let's look at those in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a mer- uh, treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then he, in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and bought it. The person who found this treasure hidden in a field, it doesn't even appear like he was actually looking for the treasure. He was just kind of meandering through and he found this treasure. And when he did, he went and sold everything that he had and bought the field so he would get the treasure. I met a new friend named Rick just a couple weeks ago right at the back left door here. Like common, I said to Rick, like, how long have you been around Crossroads? He said, just a few months. And then he made this confession. He said, it wasn't really for godly things that brought me here. But he said, since being here, I begin to understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. We went on to talk about salvation being a free gift, that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. But then we talked about sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, and I made sure that he knew that that will cost him everything. This parable tells us that, right? The guy looking for a pearl knew what he was looking for. He was looking for a really expensive pearl, and then he knew what he was looking at, a pearl that had great value. And like The man who stumbled a treasure in the field, he went and he sold everything that he had and he bought that pearl that was worth more to him than anything else. Jesus tells a lot of parables, a lot of other strong challenges about having anything else in our life that's more important than the kingdom of God. And he often made a promise that if you seek the kingdom of God, it will be worth it. Now, many of us may still not have a full grasp on what the kingdom of heaven is all about, but I hope for any one of us that chooses to take Jesus up on his invitation to follow him, that we will find that there's nothing else that compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing better than walking in his ways, nothing more satisfying than him alone. Paul was a person who was left with a choice to make. Paul in his life basically had everything that the world offered. He had fame, he had influence, he had power. You might even make a case that Paul was a wealthy man. But he had to make of a choice. Was he going to hold on to all that or was he going to choose to follow Jesus? 
And Paul writes these words. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, Paul says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. These parables make it very clear that citizenship in the kingdom of God is not something that we're born into. It's not something we can earn either. It requires a choice, a choice that's by faith to renounce anything else that the world would offer us for the sake of pursuing the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seeking first the kingdom of God above all things. And when we do, I think we'll find that it's worth it. But you have to be aware that when you follow the kingdom of God, something doesn't necessarily happen instantaneous. It doesn't like maybe happen all of a sudden. In fact, it's not even comparable to the way things work in the world around us. Jesus' parables point to that. Two more, let's look at the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. In verse 31, Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all throughout the dough. Jesus compares the kingdom of God not to just a seed, but to the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed. And he seems to indicate that the kingdom doesn't arrive in a blaze of glory, but rather begins very small and yet grows. And we see that parallel in the life of Jesus, how he came to our world. He was born in poverty, the son of a teenage mom who was not not married. He was first visited by some outcasts and sinners who were shepherds, all while lying in a feeding trough as a bed. That's how heaven came to earth. We should get our clue early that it isn't going to happen necessarily like the world expected to. In fact, those in the first century found it really hard to like accept that Jesus was the Messiah, even though his arrival had been prophesied to happen this way. They were looking for a Messiah to ride into Jerusalem, to wield a powerful sword of righteousness and defeat and destroy Rome, their enemy, and eradicate evil from the world. They wanted the power of David and the wealth of Solomon to return. If we're not careful, we can easily begin to confuse what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come and reign even in our world today. We can work so hard to seek power and influence in ways that have seemed recognized and leveraged by the world around us, yet are extremely contrary to the ways of Jesus. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, knew, spent most of his chapter on the kingdom of God challenging our approach to seeing heaven come to earth and God's reign through God's people to take place. Listen to what he writes. He says, 
To the crowd's dismay, it became clear that Jesus was talking about a strangely different kind of kingdom. The Jews wanted what people have always wanted from a visible kingdom, a chicken in every pot, full employment, a strong army to deter invaders. Jesus announced a kingdom that meant denying yourself, taking up a cross, renouncing wealth, even loving your enemies. And as he elaborated, the crowd's expectations crumbled. Clearly, the kingdom of God operates by a set of rules different from any of the earthly's kingdoms. God's kingdom has no geographical borders, no capital city, no parliament building, no royal trappings that you can see. Its followers live right among their enemies, not separated by a border fence or a wall. It lives and grows on the inside of human beings. He goes on to say this, a political movement by nature draws lines, makes distinctions, pronounces judgment in contrast. Jesus' love cuts across lines, transcends distinctions, and dispenses grace. History shows that when the church uses the tools of the world's kingdom, it becomes as ineffectual or as tyrannical as other power structures. And when the church has intermingled with the state, like the Holy Roman Empire, Cromwell's England, Calvin's Geneva, the appeal of faith suffers as well. And we have to take a time out there. What does Yancey mean when he's talking about those things? Well, first, the Holy Roman Empire sought to bring God's kingdom to the world through power. They forced everyone to become a Christian. They made it the state religion, and they baptized everybody, including the soldiers who were headed out for holy war. When you think about Cromwell's England, well, that was really about the Puritan movement where they were trying to kind of make everybody very clear, like, who was pure and who was not. And again, really by force. And then it comes to Calvin's Geneva that was really focused on a lot of behavior modification. Beware, Yancey throws in the moral majority and the religious right into the same category of this type of worldly approach of influencing for the kingdom of God. Look at the last line that Yancey says. He says, ironically, our respect in the world declines in proportion to how vigorously we attempt to force others to adopt our point of view. He says the gospel of Jesus was not primarily a political platform. The issues that confront Christians in a secular society must be faced and addressed and legislated. And a democracy gives Christians every right to express themselves. But we dare not invest so much in the kingdom of this world, that we neglect our main task of introducing people to a different kind of kingdom, one based solely on God's grace and forgiveness. Passing laws to enforce morality serves as a necessary function to dam up evil, but it never solves human problems. I couldn't have chosen a more timely quote for the mess we find ourselves in even today as we once again debate Roe versus Wade. As we listen to the agenda of very specific groups, as we watch the debate over can gun control help address the violence that we see playing out even this past week and a whole host of other issues that plague our society. It's really important that we understand and remember what God's kingdom is all about and how it works. Yancey makes one more observation about Jesus' parables. He said, sheep among wolves, a tiny seed in a garden, yeast in bread dough, salt in meat. Jesus' own metaphors of the kingdom describe a kind of secret force that works from within. 
He said, nothing of a triumphant church sharing power with authorities. The kingdom of God appears to work best as a minority movement in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. And when it grows beyond that, the kingdom suddenly changes in nature. Now I recognize these are some really strong words that might challenge how we have approached us influencing the world in the past. But I think it clearly unpacks and defines what Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast that grows. I'd encourage you to read the rest of Yancey's chapter, chapter 13 on the kingdom of God, and then finish the book with chapter 14 where he kind of wraps it up and, and talks about how it personally can impact us. We must always be careful to not let our understanding of the kingdom of God to be defined by the ways of this world, but instead to see how Jesus lived and how he loved as an expression of what it looks like for heaven to come to earth and then do our best to reflect it. The power and the influence of the kingdom of God has always been through a heart and a life that surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the influence it brings thereof. One final parable that Matthew includes in chapter 13 is actually one of the more well-known parables of Jesus. It's the parable of the sower. I think it could be better labeled the parable of the soils. The story that Jesus tells talks about a farmer who scatters seed with the full potential of growth in his field. And some of that seed fell along a path that went through the field. Some fell on rocky places. Some fell where there were thorns and some seed landed in good soil. The seed on the path, it didn't have any soil to sink into. And so birds came down and ate the seed. The seed that fell along the rocky place, it it sprang up quickly, but the soil was so shallow that the plants withered because of the heat. The seed in the thorny places grew up fast, but then were choked out by the thorns around them. And the seed that fell on good soil produced a crop multiplying what was planted. Although Jesus doesn't begin this parable with uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, when he was asked to explain it to his disciples, he indicated that this parable was actually about how people respond to the message of the kingdom of God. And he provided an explanation. Let's look at it. Listen to what the parable of the sower means, Jesus says. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times that what was sown. You see, it's really not about the seed. It's really about the soil. The seed is the kingdom of God and it is unstoppable. The question is, which soil are you? I wonder, have you heard the gospel? Maybe you've heard the truth about Jesus presented over the past several weeks. Maybe you've begun to kind of grasp what the kingdom of God is all about, but it still seems something you do not understand yet. I would encourage you, maybe even warn you, 
to not let the evil one snatch what has been planted in you. Keep pursuing the truth about Jesus as well as understanding what the kingdom is all about. Maybe you've accepted the reality that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but I would warn you not to say shallow in your understanding about who Jesus is and what the kingdom is all about. The whole goal of this series was to deepen your roots. That's the whole goal of why we do everything around here at Crossroads. We want to present you with biblical truth, but maybe far greater, we want to create a longing and a hunger for you to study God's word on your own, to surround you with godly company that will encourage you as you grow in your faith, to give you opportunities to engage your faith in meaningful ways to serve God and others, and then to begin engaging and sharing God's love in tangible ways. All those things will allow your roots to go deeper. So don't just limit your Bible reading to a few short moments here on Sunday morning, but hunger and, and digest God's word for yourself every day of the week. Extend yourself past your comfort zone and begin trusting your vulnerable heart with someone else in your life who's a Christ follower who can encourage you as you both walk toward the kingdom of God and hunger to know God more. Quit being so selfish with your time and your resource and extend yourself to someone else who is in need. Be a tangible conduit of God's love in very tangible ways as you meet their needs in Jesus' name. All those ways will keep you from being ineffective in your faith and from growing shallow or being unfruitful, even hindering the spread of God's kingdom. Don't let the worries of this world the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out the word of God that's been planted in your heart so that you become unfruitful and you lack the fruit of the spirit. Instead, let the truth about who Jesus is really and what his kingdom is all about dwell in you richly. Produce fruit, fruit that will last both in your life but also in the lives of others that will multiply the fruit that's, that, is being bear, that is being born influencing the world around you. What will it look like for the truth of who Jesus is and what the kingdom is all about to influence the way that you live and the way that you love? Does your life truly reflect that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God? Have you made an informed decision about who Jesus is? That is he worthy of your worship, your followership, your trust? Is the kingdom and God's will being done in your life as it is in heaven? And do those around you see the difference that that makes? As we wrap up this series, I wanna just challenge you to come up with one tangible way that you'll respond to the truth about who Jesus is and what the kingdom is all about. And it'd be real tempting to give you a whole list of suggestions. But instead, what I want you to do is seek the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about what it would look like for you to live in response to who Jesus is, to how his kingdom wants to reign in your life. Because I believe that that will change the way that you worship Jesus. That will change your decision to follow him wherever he may lead you. And I believe that that will influence your decision to trust him no matter what may happen. You know, we've already expressed that to God today when we sang these words. 
holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my heart in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me into those who, uh, what's the last part? Into the world. Those who, uh, you know the part of it. It's it's there. It was right there. You get my point, right? You get my point. My challenge is just, let's not sing those words if we're not going to live them. That's the reality of living out who Jesus is and what his kingdom looks like when it takes root in your life and mine. It starts to change the world around us. Let's pray to that end right now. And God, I'm so grateful that you've given us the opportunity to know you and you've wrapped yourself in human flesh and came to this earth. God, I think about all the tangible ways that you've revealed yourself to us. God, I, I thank you for the way that we see the kingdom of God taking root in this world, even with the presence of evil, God. I know who I believe is stronger. I know where I place my trust. It's not in the authorities or the systems of this world, but in the king and the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that God, that would not just change my life. I pray that it would change the life of those around me. And God, I pray that that would also do the same in those who hear my voice today. God, the kingdom of God would be planted deeply into all of our hearts. It would change the way that we live. It would change the way we love. It would change our families. It would change our neighborhoods. It would change this community. God, it would change this world. We all are well aware, God, that this world needs hope. This world needs help. And the kingdom of God contains the power. It's not of us, it's of you. So our prayer is to let the Holy Spirit reign deeply in us so that the kingdom of God would come from heaven to earth. God, until that day where you come back and you bring judgment, God, I pray that we'd be busy, we'd be faithful, we'd be effective and be in salt and light. God, I pray that the world would change because of your work in us and through us. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.